Welcome to Flaps Podcast. Hello, welcome to Flaps Podcast and Happy New Year. I'm Elliot. And I'm Mark. Our New Year's resolution was to actually get some podcasts made this year. And as it's January and we're speaking to you, so far so good. In this edition, not one, but two celebrity pilots. We'll talk to everyone's favourite Foxy Maths genius. Yes, it's the countdown legend and newly qualified pilot, Carol Vorderman. And in a bit of a tribute to Carol, in a countdown styly. Uh, here are some letters as a clue to our other celebrity guest. Are you ready, Mark? Yep. Here we go. L E M B I T O P I K. Hmm, okay, that's quite hard. L E M B I T O P I K. That's a very random selection. Really? An awful selection of letters. Are you sure? Terrible. Have you written it down? Look at it. Okay, look, it's not that random, is it, really? Really, Mark? L E M B I T O P I K. Have a look. Hmm, okay. Well, the best I can come up with, Richard, is by Milk Poets. No. No. Okay. Um, bike pilot M. What? Oh, I like to be MP. Any good? Um. Well. Well. Look, he he did used to be an MP, and he'd like to be an MP, but you still haven't got it. You're nowhere near. Richard Whiteley would be spinning in his grave. Uh, the answer is Lembit Opic. Oh, L-E-M-B-I-T-O-P-I-K, yeah. of course. Now I feel like a right consonant, vowel, consonant, consonant. Anyway, we bumped into him at the flying show at the NEC before Christmas. I always have time for my podcast chums. Also, we'll bring you much more from the flying show, including a man with a fan on his back. Cold, lonely, strange, but yeah, what a buzz. As usual, Pablo Mason dispenses more wisdom in a minute than most do in a month. I'd been ten-pin bowling with friends, and then I got off the bus at the wrong stop. Also, you'll hear from the Air Cadets and the latest news from the CAA. Foxtrot Lima Alpha Papa flaps. Cast your mind back to 2010. It was a bad year for aviation. Ah, yes, you mean the Icelandic ash cloud. It grounded flights across Europe. No, I mean, Flaps podcast was launched. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that, does it? Anyway, our very first guest was former MP and self-confessed flying anorak, Lembit Opik. Do you remember this? At one time or another, I've had the following ratings. uh, Basic glider rating, SMLG... That self-launching motor glider rating, the uh, club pilot powered level rating. Um, I've had an instrument meteorological conditions rating, night rating. I've got a twin rating, and I started on the instrument uh, rating as well. Well, who should we run into at the flying show but the great man himself? So we thought we ought to have a bit of a catch-up. Lembit Opic, welcome back to Flaps Podcast. You are our first celebrity pilot. In fact, I think you were the very first thing back in 2010. I was the alpha, but hopefully not the omega, of this fantastic (laughs) series of podcasting. And I salute you into your third, almost your fourth year. Yeah, thank you very much. And um, it's great to be back here. We've been here a couple of times as well. I think this is our third visit as well. And what, what brings you here, obviously? you're a lover of flying what do you think of it this year i'm a pilot have been for 25 years unbelievable really and i've come here year after year originally because i was the president of the british uh, hang gliding and paragliding association Uh, 
more recently, because I work with AFE, I'm a regular columnist in Flight Training News. And, you know, if you've got flying in your blood, it's like malaria. It just <laughs> flares up at least once a year, and it flares up when I come here. Well, I think the, when we, first, we spoke to you on the, the podcast the last time, you were telling us about a visit to, to Airbus, the Airbus factory, and you knew more stats than the people who actually built the things. <laughs> I remember that vividly. So, have you been anoracking furiously around here, Lambert? Uh, I've been correcting the CAA. <laughs> you know, I've been explaining a few of the aerodynamic problems with some of the, the equipment here. And for some reason, people don't thank me for that. I don't understand. I think they probably think I'm still a politician. <laughs> and, you, and you find the stand with the most attractive women as well. You might say that I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> Don't blame them; they can't help themselves. <laughs> so, what sort of what sort of flying have you been doing recently? Any good trips to tell us about? I tend to fly in the UK and mainly in my Mooney M20C, and normally the chips are 100 or 200 miles. But sadly, I've sold it. So I've been tootling around in a Piper Archer 3 from Slape uh, Airfield, and possibly buying back into my old M20J Mooney in Denham. But apart from going to France, generally I'm British Isles based. And what's the day job now? Because the last time we spoke to you, 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 you were just about to embark on some stand-up comedy, if I remember rightly. How did that go? Who's laughing now? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's gone quite well. I do quite a lot of it, mainly for charity, because that way, if I'm not funny, there don't have to be any refunds. Uh, but the, the day job, if you like, is three jobs. I am the Director of Communications and Public Affairs for the Motorcycle Action Group, uh, which is effectively the riding lobby for, for bikers in the UK. So you're going to the motorcycle show after this, because they're in the next hall, aren't they? I've been on that stand <laughs> all week long, actually, and uh, I've just been walking around with uh, Steve Baker, who's the Member of Parliament, with some of the responsibilities for that. Uh, I manage pop groups, really believe. Really? Uh, yes, I do, yes. And, uh, Who have you got? We've got a band called Stranger, a great chap called Nicky Murray, who debuted with two world tours, uh, one with Madonna and one with Celine Dion, he's now setting out on his own. Uh, a couple of other bands as well, The Wolves, who are Bedford-based, so I do Cheeky on. Girls? I... They don't catch the band, got, do they, I think? I never got paid by them, but that's for very different reasons. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I do the bikes, I do the pop groups, and then I do quite a lot of journalism and uh, TV documentaries as well. So it's a beautiful life. So obviously, you, you know, you write a lot about flying. What, what do you make of the, the, the moves at the moment to try and make things simpler for flying, move, remove some of the red tape? There's always a lot of talk about reducing legislation, but it rarely happens. On this occasion, I'm optimistic. Grant Shapps, who is the Member of Parliament most committed to this for aviation, is a serious heavyweight player. I'll be interviewing him quite soon, in fact, and I do believe him. He's got the ear of the Prime Minister, massively respected man. We have to be specific about what we want to cut and why. As long as we make a good case, there's a better than evens chance it'll happen. So I may not be a Conservative, but thumbs up for Shapps. Good to speak to Lembit again, and remember, you can hear the original interview on the very first Flaps podcast. It's still available on the website. And more coming up from The Flying Show in a few minutes. Celebrity Pilot. This month's Celebrity Pilot has handled more letters than the Royal Mail did at Christmas. For 26 years, she dished out the letters and set the sums on Channel 4's show Countdown. At the start of December, she fulfilled a lifelong ambition as she learned to fly and she gained her PPL. But that's not the end of her plans, as Elliot found out when he chatted to her. Carol, um, I'm mm. going to have to say congratulations on the pilot's licence. Oh, thank you. How was it? Oh, it's fantastic. I flew out, uh, I've been learning out of uh, Gloucestershire. Airport. Staverton, yeah. Staverton, yeah. 
and uh, wonderful flying school, Staffordham Flying School, uh, owned by a woman, and my instructor was a woman. And uh, we just had the best time, and I absolutely loved it, although the weather was getting a bit rubbish in October, November time. And uh, and I got my licence, uh, how many weeks ago was it? Three or four weeks ago? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so thrilled with that. And, and of course, I mean, it's always difficult to do your first solo. That's always a pressure. But yours was on the telly, wasn't it? It was on this morning. I, it was on this morning, <laughs> yes. Because uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to do my first solo, which is the first time anybody, as you know, goes up in an aeroplane by themselves. And it is a bit of a moment. Every pilot remembers that moment because it's like... It's a brown trousers moment, isn't it? It is. It's Let's like, be honest, it's uh, a brown trousers I've now moment. got to get this down on the ground. And if I don't, yeah. then there could be a very nasty accident. Uh, you can't just pull over to the side no. of the road. It's no, not like no. that. Um, so I wanted to do it because I want to sort of promote, particularly for, for women, this idea of women of a certain age being able to do what they want to do or have always wanted to do and challenges and also about aircraft and flying. And that's my sort of mechanical side of my head. Um, and it was, you know, it made very, very good telly. They were absolutely thrilled with it. And people sort of held their breath for six minutes thinking, can she get down? <laughs> All right. I think it was the first time I'd ever landed on the centre line of the runway as well. So I was very pleased about that. So it was a good, it was a good one then? It was a good one, yeah. Mind you, anyway, they say anyone you can walk away from is a exactly. good one, isn't it? So, yeah, yes, that's exactly. And, and you see, when people pass, usually they think about where they're going to go, maybe over to Latuke or something, but you're going to fly around the world, aren't you? Expl- uh, well, <laughs> explain, explain this to us. Explain it, Karen. Well, what I, I've always wanted to be a, a pilot. So this next year, and, you know, the kids are, you know, older now and she's at university and he's in the sixth form and all of that kind of thing. So I have more time for me. Uh, for the first time in my life. And um, so I've always wanted to do something, but I'm always a sort of project person, a deadline woman. So I needed to set myself a target. So I've set myself a target that in a year's time, I'm going to be good enough to fly solo around the world. And if I manage to complete it, I'll be the ninth woman ever to do so. But so that means in the next year, I'm devoting five or six days a week to flying revision for big flying exams for my ATPLs which you'll know what they are yeah, yeah. and uh, then I'm doing my instrument rating and then I'm doing my commercial pilot's license in all fact, in a year well this I mean with all your your love of maths you yeah. if, if anyone can do it you can <laughs> you, you must be the only person who can understand the damn whiz wheel right are you, you, oh, the whiz oh, wheel, the whiz yeah. wheel. but yeah, even you with your massive maths brain must have still struggled with that yeah, although everybody uses I mean, we, you have to do that for your exam, as you know, but then everybody goes on to Just GPS systems. Throws it away, yeah, absolutely, yeah exactly. absolutely. What are you most scared about? The Because that must, that must be quite a scary thing, the thought of going around the world. Yeah, it is. I mean, I had a nasty moment uh, one day uh, when I was just going to do some solo circuits and I was sort of just got airborne and there was this whiff of burning. I thought, oh. Oh, I don't know what that is. Blimey. Then it was all right, and I was climbing, 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 got to a thousand feet, and I was going to go up to Wolverhampton, funnily enough, and uh, that day, and then as I turned, there was this sort of blast of hot air and massive burning smell. So I called down. And I said, ah, "Damn winterland!" <laughs> I said, "Have you got a problem?" Yes, you know, I can smell burning. Blah blah blah. All runways cleared. You know, you're free to land on all runways. Fire truck. All of that. And I got down. It was still burning. And what it was was a tiny, tiny oil leak uh, from a uh, not from a gasket. It was sort of a screw bit. And as I was climbing, um, if you can imagine the sort of the geometry of it, and and this drop of oil landed on the hot exhaust tube, as you know, when you're taking yeah. off, you're at full power, so the exhaust tube is really, really hot. 
and it just sort of went flash of flame and that was what uh, had come through. It wasn't an engine fire as such. And it was just that. It was that, but by hell, it gives you a nasty scare. I was, you wouldn't I was want a bit that over the Pacific, would you? After that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> fine flying over where we all live because there are lots of fields that you can yeah. land in, you know, but uh, potentially. But um, no, the Pacific, that's, uh, that's a whole different ball going there. Yeah. Well, Carol, it's listening. It's truly inspiring what <laughs> you're doing and, uh, and good luck with it all. Thank you very much. Flaps in the air, everywhere. Right then, it's back to the flying show where Mark caught up with Mike Barnard, GA programme manager at the CAA. He told us all about some exciting future developments that are on the way from the authority. The CAA has the plan that we're going to adopt a different approach to how we regulate general aviation. It's not just what we're going to do over here in the UK. Um, Europe has been really gagging for a a revised approach to a GA regulation for some years now. there's a big view in some quarters in Europe that we should just basically burn the rule books and um, where appropriate start again because we have a regulatory framework that's um, framed very extensively around what's right for commercial air transport and um, even though people have tried hard when it gets down to GA it's still seen as too onerous. Now you're heading up a new GA unit what's it going to do? Right the GA unit is um, it's a pretty much a, an outflow from Red Tape Challenge. Um, what we said was in going through Red Tape Challenge, we could have adopted a number of potential ways of looking after GA, and that could have ranged from doing nothing right through to maybe going and setting up an entirely new competent authority. Um, we felt in the CAA that the best way forward is not to do either of those. The best way forward is to actually create a unit within the CAA focused on GA, staffed with people who know it, and working with industry to create a future that GA needs to be very mindful of um, how complex regulation can be, looking at the cost of regulation and also the cost of compliance and and essentially make a microcosm of the CAA inside the CAA to look after GA. GA is a a massive arena, isn't it? So, um, So what part of GA are you looking at? Well, when we looked at this originally, you're absolutely right. GA spreads from everywhere, from um, a guy with a hang glider right up to a a privately operated Boeing 737. If it ain't commercial, then it's GA. And so clearly the GA unit's not going to and cannot look after that. So we took a little bit of a bounce around options. Uh, We looked at microlights only, we looked at various things, and we came out using the EASA definition of um, non-complex aircraft, which means essentially any... um, any aeroplane up to 5.7 tonnes, um, 19 seats, single pilot, uh, multiple piston, single turbine, and an equivalent range of helicopters. That's the aeroplane side. On the operational side, we said really this is all about non-commercial operation. So we'll probably include balloons and their, um, and their commercial operation, but it's essentially non-complex aircraft, um, non-commercial operations thereof, but also the paraphernalia that goes behind that. So the design and production organisations, maintenance organisations, approved training organisations that are producing private pilots, so PPLs, LAPLs and the ratings that go behind it. We'll also have um, an oversight of GA aerodromes. So we're not interested in the large aerodromes, but certainly the small ones where the CAA gets involved, those will form part of the um, unit. We won't be looking at airspace, clearly, because that's just part of the overall operating environment. Can you give us any examples of the, of the kind of thing that you're working on? 
back in August, we announced that we're going to look at um, the regulation of small microlites. And, and right now, we're almost at the point where we can confirm that we will be deregulating single-seat microlites. Um, it's a great shot in the arm for UK PLC. allows people to crack on without necessarily having to have somebody else looking at the um, oversight of the aircraft. We've got some very interesting work coming down the pipeline, which ranges hugely. We're talking with the LAA about how we can allow certain um, of their aircraft to fly at night under IFR. We're working heavily with the Historic Aircraft Association to identify means by which they can better keep their aircraft flying. There's a lot of exciting stuff coming down the line. Now, it's all very well, Mike, the authority making all these changes, but also, you know, some responsibility ultimately lands on the pilot's shoulders as well, doesn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right there, Mark. Um, we're we're looking, at, looking at safety in the round. There's a kind of view that says that um, lack of skills will hurt you. You know, you'll run off the runway, you'll fluff the landing. And I see too many AIB reports where a fatal outcome has come about because the guy had just flouted the rules, you know. So no matter how clever our rules were, there's a group of folk out there who just ignore them. So where we're kind of at, we, we're saying the level of regulation that we apply should be proportionate. It should be proportionate to, if it goes wrong, what's the risk to society? You know, if a, if a jumbo jet lands on Hounslow, that's a society catastrophe. If a, if a bloke breaks his legs in a paraglider, it's a personal tragedy, but it's, society won't bat an eyelid, quite frankly. So the risk to society is important, but so too is the the acknowledgement of the risk by the participants. So if you add those two together, you see that at the bottom end, we don't need to have huge interventions. At the top end, we need to have huge interventions because the risk to society is enormous, nobody buys into any risk, and so the regulator has to intervene. Now, where we want to get to, we want GA participants to be, a, to be aware of the risk they run, to allow them to do as much as we can, as long as they don't represent a risk to uninformed third parties, as long as they know what risk they're buying into, let them crack on. Um, and, and that's really the framework for where we're going. You can find out more about the new GA unit at the website caa.co.uk forward slash GA. It's Mason's Minute. Someone asked me once whether it was easy to adapt to military discipline. And all I can remember by way of explanation is my very first exposure to it. Now, I was the eldest of six children. And at the age of 12 and a half... My youngest brother was barely a few months, and life at home was uh, pretty hectic. Mum and Dad had a casual attitude to life, and certainly to discipline. And I'm not sure how we coped, but we did. We had a big family in a big home, and I, all I can remember of my childhood was that it was big fun. Um, and then I got off the bus one day at the wrong stop. Um, I'd been ten-pin bowling with friends. I looked as a young man, barely a year or two older than me, coming the other way, absolutely pristine, crisp, smart, in this Air Force-style uniform, passed me uh, without uh, looking sideways in my direction and vanished through a hole in a hedge. Now, I was intrigued by this, so I followed him and found myself in a wooden hut that was probably 10 years um, before the date that, that I existed. We're talking about 1962 here. And all sorts of people being rushed around by all sorts of young people, most of them barely a year or two older than me. 
and I went into the room. I was immediately told by a chap wearing two stripes on his arm, which meant he was a corporal, to grab a broom and start sweeping. This I did. Um, He gave further orders for the next half an hour or so, and I obeyed them as best I could by sweeping and polishing and dusting. And then he came along and said that... um, he didn't think he recognised me, and I said that's because I'd only just arrived. I called him Sir. I made the mistake of calling him Sir. And uh, he explained to me that Sir was for officers, and officers was for giving orders, and corporals, like what he was, was for making sure the orders were carried out. He looked slightly red-faced, but then took me along to the commanding officer to meet him, to be told about the air cadets, and the commanding officer assured me that it wasn't all about sweeping floors and polishing things. But I had actually quite enjoyed myself, and it was the start of the most wonderful career, which began with the air cadets, which matured into the immaturity of uh, flying helicopters and fighters, and then further matured into the further immaturity of taking people on their holidays. It's been the most exquisite life, and um, largely because I got off the bus at the wrong stop. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. Time to head back to the NEC for more from The Flying Show. As well as the usual light aircraft, gyrocopters and teddy bears in flying goggles. You bought one of those. I know, I called him Pablo. What? Well, he's cute and cuddly, and his whiskers tickle me in bed at night. Right. Good. Anyway, as well as that lot, one of the stranger things was a giant fan that you strapped to your back. So I asked Rob and Carl from Bailey Aviation what it was all about. You've got a bear called Pablo. We're on the Bailey Aviation stand and I'm here talking to Rob. Um, I'll be honest, Rob, I don't know what this is. What is this? Okay, so this is a paramotor. It's a foot-launched paramotor. So it's basically a glorified uh, lawnmower engine on your back, providing thrust. You have a paraglider above your head, engine on your back. You take two or three steps if there's a little bit of wind and you're off the ground. You can fly all day long. Are you insane? Are you mad? (laughs) Well, that's a distinct possibility. (laughs) But actually, it's actually probably the safest form of aviation in the UK. I suppose if the engine packs up, you've got a parachute. You've got a parachute, effectively, yeah. And and most people that fly, fly to look around and see things. So you're not flying at 10,000 feet. I mean, he did have the world attitude record at one point, UK at 14,000 feet. But most people fly two or three hundred feet, fly around the countryside, have a good look at things. Uh, most people only fly over fields and stuff anyway, so if you want to land, well, the engine cuts out, you just But with these four-stroke engines, the engine cut out, I know, it's, it's more reliable than your car. It's, um, it is like a glorified rucksack, isn't it, basically, yes. that you strap onto your back. It's an incredible thing. I just put it on a minute ago. It doesn't, it's not very heavy. It is, it's, well, how much does that weigh? What, what, what's this, that thing? This one's about 26 kilos empty, but, I mean, don't forget that the moment you're off the ground, the weight of the engine is taken by the canopy anyway. So once you've had a few flights and you're skillful at putting, putting it on quickly and launching quickly, it's minimal, doesn't matter. And is it easy to control? Very easy to control, absolutely. You could land on that uh, piece of paper from <laughs> 10,000 feet. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And you said, you, you said when we were talking to you at the beginning, before we did this chat, you said, oh, we do this from our garden, we all fly from our back gardens. Is that yeah, true? absolutely true. I'm like, there's a video on YouTube of me landing on the roof of a moving van that my wife was driving. <laughs> it's, it's that predictable it's easier to land Your airborne hooligans it's easier to land these because of course you've got the engine on your back more than a parachute if you're doing spot landing on a parachute you've got no other control apart from your downwind speed good right when you've got an engine on your back you can go around you can try it again and how, fa- how fast is this thing uh, well the speed of it depends on the canopy that you're flying 
Uh, if you're flying just a normal paraglider, somewhere between sort of 20 and 30 miles an hour. If you're flying one of the competition gliders that we fly, somewhere between 30 and sort of 55 miles an hour. So not fast, fast, but as fast as the slowest microlights. And what's the, what's the range on, on, on that? How much fuel can it take? Well, this, this four-stroke burns uh, about two and a half litres an hour. That's, that's, that's nothing, it, is it? And it takes 10 litres, so four hours at 45, 50 miles an hour. Do you, I suppose you, you've got it with you, haven't you? So, I mean, do yep. you use it to go anywhere? I mean, is it, is it practical as a form of transport or is it just a bit of fun? It is quite practical as a form of transport, especially as the roads are getting busier and busier. So, Paul Bailey, whose stand this is, so he, he, he lives about uh, 12 miles away from where his workshop is, which is also on a kind of a little farm, and he often flies to and from work. <laughs> All the traffic's at a standstill at between 7 and 9 o'clock in the morning around Cambridge. He just flies casually and lands in the back garden, goes to work, flies home again. Do you need much teaching? Is it, is it hard to learn to do it and do you need a licence? Um, most people have got one. You don't need one, but most people have got one. And you probably, if it's good flying weather, you could probably learn in a week. There is a skill involved, um, but it's a little bit like patting your head and rubbing your tummy at the same time. Once you've got it, it's not that difficult. And if you look at, if you look at the accident history in the UK for these next to nothing you know uh, less than a handful and, and there's quite a few thousand people that fly them now Carl you've um, you've done some fairly extreme things with, with one of these tell us yeah I've been uh, 14,000 just over 14,000 feet um, what's that like with basically a big rucksack and a fan on your back cold <laughs> lonely <laughs> yeah strange but yeah what a buzz yeah a real buzz and you've been to China haven't you yeah we've been to China in the world championships in uh, 2006 we had a day of rest. We had permission by the, the Chinese the military, I think, control the airspace there. And now they give us a day of rest, and they, we had permission to fly the Great Wall of China. Wow, what was that like? Oh, amazing. You can't explain it. You, I can talk, talk, talk about it all day, but, you, you know, you'd fall asleep, you know. <laughs> and what's it like when you're up there? Okay, 14,000 feet's a bit extreme. But is it, is it, I mean, it's really pure flying, I suppose, this, isn't it? I mean, this must be as close as you can get to being a bird. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, we can go up, we fly around the clouds... Sometimes, you know, in certain countries, you'll let, you'll fly with vultures. You know, you can switch the engine off. Big birds of prey will come round you, fly with you in the same thermal. Oh, that's amazing. And if you do switch the engine off, how long, how long can you glide for? And, and is it hard to restart the engine if, if you need to? No, it's easy to start the engine. It's not a problem. Um, depends how high you are. You know, when you turn the motor off, or if you're thermal flying, you can fly for hours on end depending on the day and the conditions. Uh, flying is getting more and more expensive, isn't it, obviously yeah. with fuel, but is, I mean, this, is a, this is fairly cheap, I would imagine, once you've got the kit. Is it, would you recommend it to people? Oh, definitely. That's, that's got to be the cheapest form of like, motor, motorised aviation going, you know. To me, that's better than sex. And lasts a lot longer as well, if you're up there for four hours. <laughs> he is notoriously bad at sex, though, <laughs> so I've heard. I think we'll leave it there, but it's a pleasure to meet you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Okay, well, we found the Air Cadet stand. I'm here with uh, Neil Watson, who's a flight lieutenant in the RAF Volunteer Reserve in brackets training branch. Hi, Neil. How do you do? What's the Air Cadets all about? Well, the Air Cadets is basically uh, an opportunity for young people to get uh, uh, show an interest in aviation studies, uh, and we give them opportunities that they wouldn't normally get out in Civvy Street. Uh, so our... Uh, being the Air Cadets, we're supported by the Royal Air Force and we would hope to get uh, flying, gliding from them. Uh, but there's plenty more that goes into the Air Cadets than just flying and gliding. So we uh, organise adventure training, Duke of Edinburgh's award. Uh, the syllabus that the Air Cadet organisation uh, supplies enables the cadets to get BTEC in aviation studies. So a lot of the activities that they would normally undertake actually counts for something in later life. And what's the age range if you want to... Uh 
sign up. I guess I'm too old. You look young enough. Um, no, the, uh, the minimum age is 13 years, uh, and we would take cadets up to about the age of 17, 18, they become strictly an adult. Uh, but they're still in the, uh, entitled to stay on after the age of 18, up to 20. And what does it lead to? Do, do many of the youngsters go into careers in aviation? Well, not only aviation, but it also other military branches. Um, we have cadets, certainly I know from experience, that have joined the Army uh, into the Royal Engineers. We have cadets that go into the Navy. But nevertheless, yes, it's, uh, while it is not a recruiting service for the RAF, they do recognise that the experience that cadets get in the Air Training Corps gives them a good standing if they wanted to go into the services. If anybody listening wants to find out more, how, how can they do that? Well, uh, they can get, in, uh, get online and uh, look for, just type in Air Cadets into any uh, uh, web search site and they'll get uh, pointed towards the Headquarters Air Cadets website where they can find out all of the activities that the Air Cadets do. That is certainly the easiest thing uh, to do now. Uh, we're about to talk to a chap now uh, who is called Ben Chapman. He has the words Ben Chapman very prominently placed on his flying suit. Mark, what was the first question you asked Ben Chapman? Ben, Ben, what's your surname? <laughs> Hi, Ben. Hello. Everybody. It is Ben, isn't it? Yeah, it is Ben Chapman. Definitely Ben Chapman, yeah. Welcome to Flaps Podcast. Ah, nice to be here. Uh, you're, uh, you're here with the guys on the, uh, the air cadet stand. Uh, I guess you are actually a pilot. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm a civilian pilot and flying instructor, but uh, I've just started uh, training as an uh, under-training instructor with 612 VGS uh, to Abingdon, flying the Vigilant Motor Glider. Fantastic. And these, these are the, the pilots of the future, the, the, the kids you're hoping to inspire. What, what, uh, what do you get out of, of you know, working with the kids? Ah, that, that, that is it, actually. It, there is a, a, quite a buzz uh, seeing, uh, uh, taking people flying is fantastic. Um, and I've done it with adults as a flying instructor and to grab them at a younger age uh, would be fantastic. So that's why I'm getting back involved with the, the volunteer gliding school. Uh, but I've been involved with a, with a cadet organisation for 20 years. I joined it when I was 13 and um, wow. I've forgotten how <laughs> to leave, really. Um, still doing it. Yeah. It's good and, fun. and what do you do in the, what's the day job? Uh, I'm a pilot as my day job as well, uh, survey pilot, uh, was out of East Midlands uh, and looking for other work at the moment as well. And uh, what, have you had a look around the flying show? Have you, have you seen much to take your fancy here today? Yeah, there's, there's a few things. Um, I've actually mostly meeting up with friends. Uh, I've got my own aeroplane at Enstone, an RV8. Uh, and so quite a few people have been coming up to me and say, oh, hello, yeah, nice to see you again. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a social club. It's the same with when we go to Cywell or Aero You didn't fly Expo. in, did you? Because a few people have flown in, actually, to, to Birmingham. I mean, it's normally quite expensive to fly to Birmingham, but a few people have. Uh, that would have been nice if we could have got the glider fleet in there as well. <laughs> so what, how many kids do you bring through? How many, how many people do you, do you teach, so for example, this year? Well, the, the stats as of last night... See, I've been, done his homework. Yeah, yeah, done my homework here. Uh, starts of, as of last night, we've done 12,400 hours of motor glider flying. That's since January. Uh, and 31,700 glider launches, uh, which is phenomenal. Was, That's huge numbers, isn't it? A huge number. We also do the gliding scholarship courses, uh, which takes people from a 16-year-old from zero to their first solo uh, in a glider. Uh, and uh, in the last 12 months, we've managed to... 800 people through on the course and over 500 of those have actually gone solo within the allocated times. That's brilliant. That's, that, that's a lot of flying, isn't it? A lot of flying. It is 
an awful lot of flying. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And, and good to, as we said, good to inspire the kids and get more people flying. Ben, it's, it is Ben, isn't it, by the way? I keep Definitely forgetting. It is Ben, yeah, yes. I, can't, I can't notice that, that massive two-inch high label mark. It's called Ben Chapman, it says. I can see it now. I hadn't seen it before. <laughs> good to speak to you, Ben Chapman. Thank you. Flaps podcast. So that's it from Flaps for this edition. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if we stick to our New Year's resolution, we'll see you next month. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. The details are at flapspodcast.com. And if you've got a story, drop us a line at mail at flapspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. We're ready for departure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps. Okay. Ooh. Perfectly timed. Hang on. It must be half past 12. What does that mean? Boom! <laughs>